Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. Today on the podcast, we're talking to the founder of a multi-million dollar global business on the value of silence and three lessons he and his team have learned across this last year. Welcome to the Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. I'm your host, Josh Friedemann, and if you are a regular listener, you've probably realized by now that the format is a little bit different. Same great content, and I hope you enjoy the format as well. Our guest today is a successful entrepreneur, motivational speaker, and philanthropist, as well as the author of the best-selling book, In the Sphere of Silence. He's the founder of a multi-million dollar global business and is a well-known thought leader in Asia who has been listed in Forbes as one of Asia's top 50 philanthropists. He's also on the advisory board of the World Economic Forum's Global Growth Companies and a regular speaker at WEF's annual meeting in Davos. Here is Vijay Ezwaran. BJ, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. So I'd like to start off every single interview with a few questions that help us to get to know you better as a leader and give us some insight for our own lives. Are you ready for these? Absolutely. What is some lesson, saying, or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? If I had to pick one, I would probably go with my favorite phrase from Mahatma Gandhi, be the message that you want to see in the world. Be the change you want to see in the world. That works very well for me and has done so for a long time. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is? A leader is someone who's always there. Let's begin with that one. I think it's rather critical that in leadership, the constant communication, the constant touch, the feedback is, is critical. People need to see you and feel you and hear you. So to be there is, I think, a pretty big deal. Leader has to lead from the front, and uh, sometimes also from the you know from your side and the back. But the leader essentially has to always be in front because he breaks the path in front of you, so to speak. You know, makes head waves. And um, a leader stands for the principles that he believes in, principles that you would be able to follow yourself. So that makes him a leader. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? Well, for me, constantly, my first question is, am I better than what I was doing yesterday? There has to be a constant improvement. So for me, fundamentally, that's what I'm asking. I need to always know if I could be wrong in any fashion. So a neutral point of reference is what I seek. So for me, I I always constantly seek a point of a reference and usually find the wisdom in the masses somehow. What's a book that you would recommend to leaders? Well, that's a good one. I have a few of them. Uh, but the first, I would start off again with my favorite mentor icon, if you like, Mahatma Gandhi himself. His book is called My Experiments with Truth. I find that to be a fascinating, uh, literally a life management guide. And, uh, you know, it's one that I go back to quite often. 
I also have another book that I go to very often, which is Sun Tzu, Sun Tzu's Art of War, uh, which I find fascinating and uh, constantly insightful. And um, the third would be Musashi, which is a Japanese warrior. And the book Musashi actually wrote The Art of Warfare is uh, another very powerful guideline for me. So those three. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would that thing be? Well, if there's one thing that has guided me over the years, it is this single practice that I have practiced every, every day, literally, uh, for the last, I don't know, three, maybe four decades. And that is I take about an hour to myself every day. And in essence, I call it entering the sphere of silence. So being in that silent mode every day allows me to, in essence, do an analysis of myself, of the day that's ahead of me, and if possible, even longer. That constant analysis keeps my feet on the ground and uh, keeps my head uh, in the right direction, so to speak. And I want to get a little bit more operational or, or practical insight on how each person who's listening to this podcast can live that out in just a second. But we have one final question, and we call this our arbitrary but insightful question, and that's this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? I've always preferred why not. For me, there, there are no limitations to what one can achieve. The potential that one has within is something that one constantly needs to reach and breach. So it's a, it's a process where you continuously grow and you start off by saying, why not? Why can I not do that? Why not me? Why is this not something that I was born to achieve? So these are questions that I literally put up with every day. We'll be back with the rest of our interview right after this. As the leader of your organization, you have a lot on your plate. You work most of your day, leaving you little time to think about your own development. There's a resource for you, and it's called the Leadership Action List. Get the best leadership development tips for leaders by leaders at leadershipactionlist.com. The best news? It's free. Once again, for a year's worth of weekly leadership development, download the Leadership Action List at leadershipactionlist.com. Well, Vijay, I really appreciate being on the show today. In just a minute, we're going to be talking about the top three lessons that you and your team have learned from this past year and how these lessons have shaped how you do business. But first of all, I want to get back to this sphere of silence that you talked about. Could you tell us a little bit more about the sphere of silence and what people who are listening to this podcast, especially leaders, what leaders need to be doing so that they can be better leaders through using this sphere of silence? Well, to sketch a little bit of history behind this, this is not something that I designed or created all by myself. It is something that in a way I inherited. My grandparents, my grandfathers, both of them, uh, had a practice of observing some period of silence every day, usually between an hour to as long as maybe two or three. And it's something that I grew up with as a grandson. Initially, I guess I kind of did it as a bit of a habit, something I picked up upon, but Somewhere along the way, I, I found myself uh, wandering through Europe. Sometime after my university, I ended up in a monastery in Italy. And uh, while I was there, I actually got to spend some serious time in silence. And to me, that was a turning point in my life. I had to, you know, Easter's just about now, and uh, uh, I spent Lent in this monastery 
And I spent about 33 days in total in absolute silence. And that was a turning point for me. The best way that I would describe it is very simple. Actually, one of the monks in, in that particular monastery described the body, which I also uh, use very often in my, in my speeches across the world. Uh, the body is the oldest scripture because in essence it's written by the hand of God. The body has a message if one were to look at it. So the simplest message that one can derive from this very simply is we have two eyes, a pair of eyes. We have two ears. We have two hands, two legs. We even have a left and a right brain. We have left and a right chambers of the heart. In essence, the body is literally a binary in double, except right bang slam in the middle of your face, which is your mouth. So if one were to take that as a directive, it says simply think twice as much as you speak, observe twice as much as you speak, hear twice as much as you speak, heck, breathe twice as much as you speak. And yet what do we do? We do the exact opposite. Uh, you know, the mouth runs from literally from morning till night. And in many cases, even after, after that, we are known to talk in our sleep as it were. What I found is that when I observe these silences for as long as I have, I find myself going inward. And that process of going inward is a, a very critical one, you know, because it allows me to basically create a buffer between me and the world. That buffer allows me a little sense of detachment. And that is so critical. If you could actually count 10 before you lose your temper, so to speak, that could sometimes save, save a life, if not uh, save a day. That buffer is automatically created every time you enter the sphere of silence. So when you take the first hour of the day, we tend to get up and we just reach out to the phone. That's the first thing we do. And our, our life kickstarts instantly. We hardly get a moment to breathe in between. We are running from something urgent to another thing urgent. So urgent things are the function of the day. But... Um, what I realize in coming across so many people who have been immensely successful, I notice that the way they operate and the we operate operates at two different frequencies. In, in our case, we tend to basically tend to operate from a sense of going from one urgent thing to another. It's constantly one urgent thing to another. Whereas they focus on the important things. Now, how does one define what is urgent and what is important? So there's a very ancient Chinese saying. It goes that a beggar lives from meal to meal and a farm worker lives from week to week. A landlord lives from month to month. A nobleman or a mandarin lives from year to year. A king lives at least a decade at a time. But an emperor, he lives a hundred years at a time. For he has to plan for three, three generations moving forward. He thinks about how is my action today going to affect my grandchildren? Now, if you take a look at the current day scenario, the so-called successful, the movers, the shakers, the people who uh, essentially write the music we listen to, you know, write the books we read, act in the movies we act. They're the people who even draw the boundaries we live by. They live on to a different code, you know. They march to a different drum, as it were. 
And what they do is, essence is, they are focused on more important things than urgent. So urgent is like if I were to catch you in the street somewhere, Josh, and you are rushing to the bank and I'm saying, hey, bud, let's, you know, catch a, catch a drink. And you say, no, I got to go, mate. I, I just got to get to the bank. And if I caught you again a week later and I said, hey, you were in a hurry the other day. What was all that about? You're going to look at me blankly and say, geez, I can't even remember. Because that's what urgent things are all about. They usually don't even last the day, leave alone the week. But important things mean that if, if you're doing something right now, it's going to have an impact in a year. Now, if it has an impact in five years, you're really on to something. And if it has an impact in 10, then you have begun your life's vision, your life's journey. So the silence actually helps you identify and discern what is important and what is urgent and reduce our dependency on needing that urgent stuff, you know, reducing it from, you know, uh, 90, 95% to maybe 80%. If you're doing 20% important, you're heading in the right direction. So one of the one of the things I'm curious about, and you've just given us this this massive strategic reason for this fear of silence, being able to think beyond the tyranny of the urgent and think weeks, months, years, decades in advance. One of the things that might be helpful just on that very pragmatic level is what are some things that you would say are acceptable within the sphere of silence to do versus things that you would really encourage people not to do, perhaps such as looking at their phones? The fundamentally important thing is to be able to hold the world at bay, as it were, which means the first thing is lay off the phones, right? I mean, in our generation today, that has become both a boon and a bane. And in, in that sense, uh, it's a curse sometimes. So the first hour of the day, in particularly uh, in my culture, we regard it as the time of creation. The first hour of the day is, is basically regarded as the most powerful. When your mind is essentially at its most sprightly, you know, it's most versatile, most flexible. Hence, that's the time that you need to harness so the first hour, as soon as you get up, you, that's, the, that's the hour that you basically need to set aside if you can. Now, if you can't do an hour, settle for half an hour, but doing anything is better than nothing. So essentially, there are many people who ask me, can I do it the hour before I go to sleep? Yeah, absolutely. Because anything is better than nothing. But the first hour is what I would recommend. Now, the, the rules are very simple. Absolutely no, no, not allowing the world to get in the way. So that's the parameter. You don't take phone calls. You don't read newspapers. You don't watch the telly. You know, you don't pick up uh, anything that would distract you from getting in touch with your own reality. Now, how do you do that in particular? For me, the practice has been to try and get an hour a day, and I break that up. So the first part of the hour is what I call uh, duty. Under this segment of duty, I focus on essentially doing a postmortem of what I had done yesterday, what could have been made better yesterday. Let's look at that. So I would basically analyze, you know, the things that I had charted and wanted to achieve and I did not or, you know, uh, failed or whatsoever. And, you know, essentially it's a process of me writing as opposed to anything else. Writing, whether you're typing it on your phone or you're writing it out in the journal, 
is the best way to process this information. And then the next is to look at what am I going to be doing today? And then you set out the plan for today. And then you go further and set out the plan for the week and set the goals for the year and see if they are changing. Because you'll be surprised at how the goals for the year can change literally, you know, within the span of a week. Now, you'd imagine that goals for the year would remain solid, but it's, it's rarely the case. So life changes. It's always in flux. And you need to keep on planning. So projecting, planning, and preparing allows the mind to actually start a different process of internally analyzing all the things that are going on in your life. The second part of it, I tend to do about 10, 20 minutes of reading. Not fiction, not uh, pulp, not any kind of, the stuff that really make a difference to your life. Stuff that actually you, you buy, the number of books you buy in bookstores or buy on Kindle and put aside, intending to read it someday, and then it just basically goes on to the graveyard of books. These are the books that, in essence, allow you to change your thinking pattern. They need, you need to snap out of it. You know, you have a, a particular thinking pattern, and having books that you admire and respect and, and want to read but never get around to, getting 10 minutes of that a daily, even 10 minutes of that, is very powerful. So you need to basically do some reading, do some summarizing of what you read, and then the last five, 10 minutes, you basically try to, in essence, commune, if you like, with your maker. You know, some people call it meditation. Um, some people call it, uh, you know, basically prayer, but it, it really doesn't matter. It is a sense of you sitting down and coming to terms with a force that is you know, higher than you, that's always around you and trying to touch it. So if it's a matter of communing with nature, well, that works too. But spend that five or 10 minutes, you know, just shutting down and then go on to meet the world afterwards. Well, Vijay, I appreciate you sharing those those details to help listeners to operate most effectively in this sphere of silence and to incorporate it into their lives. Now, one thing you said a second ago is that plans for a year can change in a week. And we definitely found that out just about a year ago. And one of the promises that we made to our listeners today is that they're going to be able to hear the three lessons that you and your team learned in this last year proactively responding to situations during the pandemic that have helped you in your lives and in your business. The first one of these is revert to a startup mindset. And I'd love for you to start off by sharing with us about that. The startup mindset is, in essence, I think, one of the most powerful places to be in. The problem is when a company starts to grow and, and therefore uh, starts to develop a sense of stability and then systems kick in. And systems can be the dearth. You know, it's basically where all great ideas die. You know, innovation gets really clocked in by systems. The startup mindset is how we began all those years ago. We are, we are 20, 23 years old as a company today. But when we, the first five years was a time of turbulence, you know, great challenges. But we had that ability to con communicate with each other, cut through the, the clatter, as it were, and try and test, you know, trial and error of every idea that comes about. Because, I mean, most ideas die in the dust, but every one in a hundred, you know, makes that difference, that change. The concept is to keep on testing and trying and what we try to do within the company is we have a, a, a group we call Plan B. Now, Plan B, in essence, 
is a new company that's evolving within the company, if you like. So it's always in motion and it's always a challenge to the people who are essentially, you know, in plan A, which is running the company. So they have competition within the company. So it's a constant confrontation that happens at, at many levels and keeps the energy levels high. And the ideas that come out of it is has been, uh, in many cases, uh, lifesavers for us. So that would be one that, that I would take very seriously. Yes. And I feel like plan A and plan B companies, that alone could be an entire podcast episode, but we'll leave people to just ruminate on what that might look like for their own lives and for their own leadership. The second lesson that you have shared is redesign the wheel. How about that one? You see, what worked when you started obviously cannot be permanent. At that time, it was probably ice-breaking. It was phenomenal. It was uh, an idea that basically bent the curve and, and all of that. But eventually, you need to basically take the basis fundamental of what made your company successful and pull it apart and say, how do I redesign this? You see, uh, and, and that's a process whereby you go back to the basics and say, if I were starting this company again, what would I do differently? Where would I go? Would I do something differently? If, if I did, what would that be? Now, I generally find that a lot of the ideas that flow from this process comes not generally from the people who have been working on the plan A, which is the company. They are 20 years old and they are used to systems. They're used to the history and everything else. But the people who are just coming day before yesterday, and they tend to be, you know, like in, in millennials or centennials or gen alpha, and they come with a whole different way of looking at the same problem, as it were, or the same challenge. They have new ways of looking at it. And I learn a lot from them. So you might call that reverse mentoring, but it works. You know, so sitting down and listening to them has been one of our secret weapons. It has helped us deal with the fact that the, the new norms that we are facing right now is something they are used to. And not only are they used to it, they have, they have literally dived into it. You know, they're embracing it a lot faster than the rest of us, uh, you know, who are, uh, in essence, prehistoric for them. <laughs> I mean, when you talk to them, uh, you'll, you'll get the gist of it. It's like they've never seen a rotary phone. They've never seen a dial phone or a telephone booth. And they don't, they don't relate to stuff like that. So they actually provide a lot of insight into how we need to redesign the wheel. And um, I think it would be different for every company, but that would be the place to start. And the final lesson is prioritize your people. Now, a lot of people can hear that and they can think about what that might mean. I'd like to know what that means for you. I think the most important thing that a person brings to the company cannot be found in a resume. So, you know, resumes are things that might get you through the front door, but they don't really represent your potential, your capacity. And um, I found that uh, the things that I look for in people are things like loyalty, integrity, for instance, work ethic, and so on and so forth. So there's a whole different thing, a bunch of stuff that cannot be quantified and you cannot benchmark. So how do you put that into a resume? Because that's really what makes a great employee. Great employees come in two sets. One is you can find them as mercenaries, all right? And they, are, they come for the buck. They deliver. Mercenaries tend to deliver. 
but they're not in there for the long run. You cannot expect loyalty from them. On the other hand, you have the second group, which is missionaries. So between mercenaries and missionaries, it's missionaries that carry your company on to the next generation, on to the next decade. So how do you identify missionaries? This is where skill sets take a backseat. It's all about the other factors that they bring to the table. Like I said, loyalty, integrity, work ethic, and uh, daringness, you know, being determined. All of this uh, are very important. And I, I tend to value that. So when I say prioritize your people, you really got to identify your mercenaries and missionaries. You got to pick, you know, your missionaries. And missionaries are work in progress. Mercenaries come in ready-made. They are basically, you know, been trained somewhere else. They, they bring the skill sets. They tell you what to do. But the missionaries, now these are the guys that you basically have to pull up by the bootstraps. And you got to work with them, you know, inch by inch as it were. It's a longer and a harder road. But they are the stairs. They are the ones that the company will come to depend upon in time to come. Well, Vijay, I appreciate you coming on to the Life is Leadership podcast today to share your insight with us. Before we finish today, is there any final thoughts you'd like to leave the listeners with, whether something you just want to reiterate from our conversation or something we haven't had the chance to address at all yet today? Well, there's one thing that I find that somehow, you know, uh, we tend to overlook. We tend, for me, the role of a contrarian is very important. So it's important to have an opposite opinion all the time. And it's very easy for us to overlook someone because we don't like them. But we generally will not like someone who challenges us all the time. But that's essentially the single most important factor in most cases that leads to us to uh, either innovation or success. Someone who challenges all the time makes us perform better makes us reevaluate everything better, but they also tend to rub us the wrong way. You know, basically we refer to them as pain in our pains. Now, being a pain in the butt, so to speak, is sometimes a good thing. So I encourage that. I encourage you to find contrarians in every department, in every level of leadership, and even around you, because that is the thing that could make a difference. Vijay, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's interview with Vijay. If you'd like to follow him on social media, you can find how to do that in the show notes below or at lifeasleadership.com. I also encourage you to sign up for the Leadership Action List. If you're looking for something to help you improve your leadership on a consistent basis, the Leadership Action List is 52 actions to improve your leadership. In other words, that's weekly leadership development for an entire year. Get your free copy of the Leadership Action List at leadershipactionlist.com. Until next time, keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. 
Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist, it feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now, or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon, and until then, keep living and leading well.